Hello, I'm Jeff Johnston, host of the Living Undeterred podcast, and today we have another exciting guest, Cat uh, Marriott from the wonderful state of Ohio. And Cat uh, and I have talked a few times, and I'm really excited to have her share her story and her perspective and some of the um, advocacy she's doing uh, with some of the same things I'm interested in. So with that, Cat, welcome to the show. How are you? I am just fine, and thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. We, um, I think you and I hooked up on LinkedIn, which is kind of where I meet every human today. <laughs> I don't know if it's because COVID has kind of locked us in for a little while and we found social media is the best way to reach out to people. But, uh, you know, your situation is sim- very similar to my, my uh, situation as well. You lost a loved one. Why don't you uh, tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about Sarah and uh, what happened and kind of why that's put you in a position that you're at today with what you're doing. Sure. So um, uh, my sister um, back in about um, 2006 was diagnosed with a, um, an autoimmune disease um, uh, called dermatomyositis. And it's a, it's, it's a relatively rare um, autoimmune disease and it causes chronic pain and she had a lot of uh, a lot of issues, but um, uh, one of them being uh, chronic pain. And um, over the, over the course of the years, um, was put on you know different medications, and had some had some issues. And in then in about um, two thousand and nine, um, after a series of hospitalizations, she uh, she was uh, placed on. Um, uh, high dose uh, opioids for uh, managing her chronic pain. Um, my sister, um, uh, she struggled with a lot of a, a lot of issues, not just the uh, not just her autoimmune disease, but um, um, after after being placed on these uh, on the prescription opioids, um, you know things started to to change slowly but surely, and. Um, and then in about um, 2012, things really started to fall apart. Uh, she, it was clear that she was uh, dependent and um, and essentially addicted to the the prescription opioids. She started using, um, purchasing, and also selling um, on the the black market her her opioid prescriptions, and then also you know. Um, Purchasing um, other prescription opioids that turned into to heroin, um, things really fell apart, and um, she overdosed numerous times. But then in in 2016, after a period of incarceration, um, mm. she she overdosed and um, and and she passed away. Um, I don't at the time it was hard to tell whether it was. Um, intentional or accidental, but mm-hmm. living in Southern Ohio, um, this was really the height of when the, um, fentanyl um, was just right. infiltrating the um, the yep. opioid um, and base and the heroin um, market, and um, Ohio in general, but especially Southern Ohio, was experiencing a a huge number of overdoses and deaths at the time. I mean, we didn't know a whole lot about fentanyl. Of course, we, we know right. so much more about it now, but it, that, that was really the height of what 
um, you know, when fentanyl first came on the scene. Um, <clears throat> I am, um, I am a scientist uh, by, um, um, by training, and I have spent uh, many years in the world of public health, primarily infectious diseases, but um, uh, over the course of the years have run numerous organizations on the uh, public health side of, of science. Oops. But um, in, uh, in 2011, I had the opportunity to, to join PROP, Healthcare Professionals for Responsible Opioid Prescribing. And as the mm -hmm. executive director, um, I serve um, uh, running the kind of the day-to-day the -day operations of the organization and um, have combined my uh, professional skills with my personal passion for mm -hmm. addressing the opioid epidemic. Um, prior to joining PROP, I was, I was involved, I would say, in some... I would say minor or I would say, you know, small scale um, advocacy um, right. had um, joined and had uh, raised money for a handful of charities, um, you know, helped out with some local 5Ks to, again, to raise money for um, some charities. But it had really been on a very, you know, a very small, limited scale. But um, when... When I came to Prop, it really, it really, really opened the door for me in terms of advocacy and education, and I right. was, you know, both professionally and and personally, really, really gratified to um, to really to step into that position and be able to uh, not only put my my skills to to a good use, but also to put allow it allowed me to to share what had happened to my sister and our family right and turn that into a a positive situation where you know prior to that it it was it was difficult to find any um i want to say silver linings in yeah. in the situation and, and you know what our family had been through so I mean, That's hearing your story, it, it just goes, well, first of all, my condolences to your sister, Sarah, because it sounds very similar to what we went through with Seth, uh, about a six, seven year uh, issue with Adderall, starting with Adderall, and kind of like the way Sarah started with her uh, opioid, Seth was prescribed it for um, attention deficit, and then the abuse came, and then the experimenting with other drugs, and then ultimately heroin with fentanyl. And, uh, you know, I go back and I look at, you know, I look at like the movie Dope Sick and some of the scenes in Dope Sick were really hard for me to watch. Although Dope Sick was made, you know, prior to uh, Seth died in 16 and what Sarah was in 17, you said, right? Yeah, it's 2016, actually. So the same. Yeah. Same so year. 2016. So they both they both died in the same year. Uh, and it is you're right the the emphasis on fentanyl is is substantially uh, more uh, a spot a bigger spotlight on it right now which which is you know certainly what we need but you know your advocacy and what you do you know how much of your time is spent on what i call the demand side on on the why behind the reasons people use drugs or they abuse drugs versus you know a lot of people are more uh, interested in the supply side you know going after big pharma going after the drug cartels you know, do you, you're involved with the responsible 
prescription, um, opioid prescriptions. Is that kind of more on the supply side you're thinking? Because I saw a study the other day where they said since 2011, 50% of the opioid prescriptions uh, have dropped from doctors, yet deaths are up 100%. So I think I think it's naive for a society to think, well, it didn't work with prohibition, first of all. Um, if we if we reduce the supply, logic says, well, we ought to, ought to have a correlating reduction in deaths. But it seems like just the absolute opposite is happening. So can you highlight on that or explain your thoughts on, on why this dynamic seems to be so perplexing, at least to me? Sure. So um, the, it, is, it is true, unfortunately, that... Um, you know, prescriptions uh, have dropped and we have, um, I would say, returned to a more rational and reasonable, um, if not certainly not necessarily completely, but um, have definitely reversed some a lot of the trends in the prescribing practices. Um, it it also mm -hmm. I mean, opioids have been around really since civilization essentially uh, began, at least a uh, Western right. uh, civilization. Right. So opi there's nothing new right. about opioids. Um, it's, they've been a known uh, narcotic for many, many, you know, centuries. But in um, right. the late nineties or the, the early two thousands, something changed in the way that physicians uh, looked at pain, treatment of patients for pain, and their prescribing practices. And uh, document after document after document has proven, has shown without a doubt, that that the vast majority of this was was directly due to the influence that um, that pharma and a handful of large pharmaceutical companies had on. Um, you know, influencing physicians in how they prescribed and what they prescribed. So that started, if you will, the train of exposing our society to more and more opioids. And um, prior, you know, prior to that, um, overdoses and um, addiction it wasn't entirely limited to, but it was really limited to a, a fairly small, I want to say a smaller subset of the population. And um, it, the, these were individuals that were primarily using strictly heroin, um, you know, abusing uh, prescription medications, although it, I mean, it happened, it wasn't as rampant as it, as it is today. So when, when these, um, uh, you know, these changes happened in the prescribing practices and was influenced by pharma. It really opened the barn doors, if you will, to exposing the entire society and elements of the society that under normal circumstances would have never have been exposed to opioids, um, certainly not, you know, the individual, you know, communities and populations. And closing that barn door is is an immensely difficult uh, situation or a uh, very difficult uh, problem to solve. The, the fact of the matter is, is the 
the timeline, as you indicated, the timeline for an individual to be exposed to one of these, you know, one of these opioids, developing dependency, developing outright um, opioid use disorder, experiencing overdose, and then eventually um, dying. Uh, it you that that was a fairly uh, long timeline. We were talking about six, seven, eight, nine years. The yeah. advent of of illicit fentanyl coming into the um, uh, you know the the system short has shortened that timeline, and we have indi- now we have individuals that are that are dying of overdose literally from the first time that they are ever exposed and they are ever trying opioids for the, for the first time. So there is no doubt that, um, that fentanyl, uh, illicit fentanyl has changed the landscape of the opioid epidemic undeniably. But the fact of the matter is, is that it was the irresponsible. You used to get a second chance or a third chance. Yeah. But it was the irresponsible prescribing practices that exposed our society right. to opioids in general. Um, there are right. there are so many, especially young people, that never, never, ever would have been um, ha- either really had access to or even wanted to have access to uh, fentanyl today. Um, had they not been exposed right. to or known about the, um, I want to say, the potential um, uh, joys of experiencing a high on from an opioid yeah. that, that started years and years ago. What I'm seeing in the, specifically the fentanyl space, I'm on a lot of Facebook chat uh, chat rooms, I guess you call them. And man, there's a lot of dissension in, first of all, is it an overdose or is it a, is it poisoning? You know, there's, there's people that just are spending an enormous amount of time, you know, trying, and I know that everybody in these rooms have lost a loved one, like, like I did and you did yet. There seems to be, they're spending so much time on what we, what we call this and, and less time on trying to actually figure out, you know, solutions. I mean, whether you call it overdose or poisoning, Seth and Sarah aren't coming back. Right. And there are people dying today, whether you call it overdose or poisoning. So I don't know if this is from a marketing perspective, if people think we're going to get or it makes you, makes you feel better. I, I personally, I don't care what people call it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm out to try to get understanding on why people are doing these things in the first place. And um, if you talk about, again, the new paradigm shift, which is the other thing I see a lot of emphasis on. You're exactly right, Kat. He used to be a kid could take Percocet, Xanax, you know, take something, you know, Benadryl, whatever it's going to be, uh, over the counter or prescription, and it was pretty safe bet they were going to wake up the next morning. I mean, 99 percent chance. Now, 42 percent, I think, of the pills on the market are uh, are you know illicit or at least have traces of fentanyl enough that can potentially kill a human. So we went from the stigma with addicts and abusers, almost some people saying, well, they deserved it or they knew that they were doing, to now you get the four point, 
you know, football quarterback that's never done drugs dying. And now everybody's all, all excited about talking about this. And it's like, to me, it's like, I understand that a lot of people that don't understand this will stigmatize those that are struggling, but they're human beings. They're, 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 they're not, they don't deserve to die any more than anyone else or any less. And I get a little frustrated when I see now this, this shift into, well, my son was an all-American son and he shouldn't have died. And then I want to finish the sentence by saying, well, so you're saying my son wasn't and he deserved to die? It's, it's almost to me, again, I, I'm coming from a different lens. And I wish we just need to look at this as, as one problem that's affecting all different types of people, all colors, all uh, economic demographics, all doesn't matter what it is, but it seems like to me, I'm seeing these little, little, uh, tribes forming. And I, I, I am personally losing a little bit of luster to be part of some of these groups because I, I don't feel like they're productive for me. So I'm trying to, um, that's one of the reasons why we did the tour coming up here in, mm-hmm. in, uh, eight weeks, I think, uh, we're going around the country. We're going to where the abusers are, where the addicts are, where the people are having the problems. We are going in an RV. We're going to come up with solutions. And I think that's kind of my segue into my next question. How do you think we move the needle with these issues? You know, how do we look back in 10 years? I mean, what has to happen 10 years from now for Kat to look back to say, hey, we made progress? So I think, I I, I personally think that we are making progress right now. I do. Um, The statistics, unfortunately, um, don't uh, don't necessarily show that. But think Mm -hmm. about how prevalent this issue is just in the common societal vernacular that that the fact that you and I are talking about it and that we're having this podcast and that you can turn on, you know, the TV and watch a documentary or that you can turn on and, you know, watch a movie where it's talking and it's showing so freely and so, so openly and honestly the issue of the opioid epidemic. And it's not, it's not in a, not sometimes it is, but most of the time it's not in a negative and stigmatized way such that, that, you know, your son and my sisters portrayed as this, you know, this dirty drug addict that, you know, died in a back alley because they had been, you know, shooting heroin for, you know, for half their life. That, that is not the reality of, of what is happening. But the fact that we are so openly and honestly talking about it, and we are changing the vocabulary around around addiction, around dependency, around opioid use disorder, around recovery, that we are changing the mm-hmm. vocabulary about it literally on a daily basis. I mean, there there used to be a time where there were certain labels assigned to, to people and to just, you know, to ab- abuse and uh, these disorders. You know, there was this all there's been this lifelong um, debate as, you know, is it a choice? Is it a is addiction a choice? Is it a disease? And I'm kind of with you that I don't you know, I I don't care about the definition so much as, 
you know, how do we, how do we solve it? How do we change it? But, you know, one of the, the things that we talked about a lot um, the first time that we sat down and had a conversation was this idea that there was, there was a point in time where we, we, we honestly felt like we had to be quiet about what was happening to our own mm-hmm. loved ones, that we couldn't share that. Whether it was a right. disease or a choice, we felt that we couldn't, I know that I certainly did, that, that you know, oh, sh- it's, it's, it's a dirty little secret and I don't want to talk about it because if I talk about it, then that, you know, that dirty little secret, that family, that family secret is, is going to get out and someone's going to look negatively That's change. upon us. And certainly upon, you know, our loved ones that, you know, that were suffering from this, that is changing. That is changing literally on a daily basis. Yeah. We are learning. We are learning so much. And for me, it's all about the science. It's all about the evidence. There are more and more studies coming out every single day, not only that demonstrate what are the real risks and what are the real damages that opioids do to the brain, to the body, and how do we how do we avoid those? But situations, you know, research studies where we're showing beyond a, a shadow of a doubt that these common procedures that you and I and so many you right. know millions and millions of people have undergone not only can the vast majority of them, you know, these can be treated without opioids at all or at the very least with a much Absolutely. more rational Absolutely. prescribing practices. You don't need to send somebody home from, um, you know, knee surgery with uh, 30 days worth of Oxycontin. You know, three to five days. That's exactly days what is happened to me. I had knee surgery and I got a whole bottle. Yeah. So did uh, so did my husband. Um, yep. we, I I was sent home yeah. after after um, orthodontal or um, you know oral surgery. Um, you know, I was sent. I I had um, I, I had to have my thyroid removed. I was sent home with opioids from that. I didn't experience really any any excruciating pain from. Right from that procedure, but yet I was given a prescription. I didn't fill it, but I was given a prescription of, of um, about 10 days worth of, of opioids for that, just in case. We don't need to, to keep I, I handing think, out just in case. And that is getting case. better. It is. Right. That is getting better. I, I, had, I had minor surgery uh, five weeks ago today, actually. And they gave me, the day I left, they gave me like four uh, painkillers, okay? My dad's a retired doctor, so I immediately sent him a picture of the label, you know, and I said, hey, dad, what is this? And he said, oh, it's just basically Tylenol, extra strength Tylenol on steroids. You know, it's, it's not, basically, he said it wasn't anything addictive. Yeah. So, but they gave me a prescription, though. They gave, on top of the four or five pills for like four nights I could use if I wasn't sleeping well, they gave me a prescription for the same thing. Well, I went in and got that prescription and it was like 30 pills. Actually, it was 25. And I'm like thinking to myself, okay, that's 25 days. He told me that this thing would be done in about a week. And I'm not criticizing my physician at all. Trust me. I, I, I'm, 
anyway, I'm just explaining the facts to the situation. But I, I, what I did is I just took those pills and I, I just, I got rid of them. I asked my dad for help. And I got rid of them, but yeah, I, I, I think, I think it's better. You know, I think I, like I said, that study that came out from 11 to 21, that 50% of the opioid prescriptions had dropped. So that's, that's, that's good news. Um, let me throw another uh, conversation. Let me throw a conversation at you and let's talk a, a little bit about, I know we talked about this last time, but there seems to be a, even uh, president Biden in his address to the, to the nation last night mentioned the words harm reduction. Mm-hmm. I mean, those came out of his mouth, you know, a couple of years ago, that would have been taboo, you know, safe syringe sites, fentanyl test strips, all these things that, that would give maybe somebody who is struggling an extra day to live. You know, um, I just wanted to see what your thoughts were on whether that is a viable option to get these numbers to start moving in another direction. Uh, maybe explain what yeah. your definition of harm reduction is. Sure. No, absolutely. First of all, to say I absolutely, I absolutely support and believe that, listen, um, you know, when it comes to the opioid epidemic, we literally have to, I believe, use, you know, every tool in the box, every resource possible in order to address it from every angle. I, I envision the opioid epidemic as a uh, you know, a large, you know, a wagon wheel or a, uh, you know, a piece of cake or a, you know, bicycle wheel. There are multiple spokes and that, you know, there are multiple places at which we can attack and address the epi- epidemic. Right. Prop addresses it on the, the, the prevention side. Okay. Harm reduction. So that's that's right. kind of like the 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 far you know the beginning of the the spectrum of the opioid epidemic. Harm reduction is about addressing the the opposite end. So these are individuals you know addressing the needs and the the risks really um, associated with the the opposite end. These are addic- either individuals that are already addicted or are Mm -hmm. using illicit drugs for whatever reason they may or may not be you know fully addicted but one way Mm -hmm. or the other they're on the opposite end of the spectrum of of the epidemic we have to use and address every single aspect of the epidemic in order to completely fix it and to change it if we do not address um, you know, the, the prevention, then that's a failure. But similarly, if we do not address harm reduction, that would be a failure too. There are many, many, many people similar to your son, my sister, that are, that are out there now that are either experiencing, you know, opioid use disorder, full-blown addiction, and uh, potentially are using illicit illicit opioids that yeah. could be very, very risky. Why, why would we not address them? And yes, safe, you know, safe needle exchanges, um, you know, uh, safe, safe drug use zones, Narcan, you know, naloxone, buprenorphine, mm-hmm. uh, fentanyl right. strips. Yep. All of these things are all tools that we need to use in order to address the, the, you know, the problem, the, the issue at hand. 
and prop is a hundred percent supportive of all of those tools. Let me step back a minute and kind of peel back the layers and go back to the, um, the analogy you used with a wheel. Okay. Mm -hmm. Cause I use this often. One of my concerns I have in, uh, what we are doing as a society is in a way we're almost playing a giant game of whack-a-mole yeah. where we hammer something down. Let's say, let's say fentanyl or opioids and boom, boom. And over here we have alcoholism, suicide, ideation. We have, you know, tra- childhood trauma. And then that pops up and we pound that down and all of a sudden opioids come back up. And it's like, there's what I think of to me for the wheel would be mental health. It's like the oh, yeah. wheel is mental health and each spoke is, you know, um, trauma, grief, um, alcohol, uh, drug addiction, sex abuse, gambling addiction, food addiction. Those are like the spokes in the wheel. So one of the reasons why the tour that we are going on in eight weeks is the Living Undeterred U.S. Tour, a mental health initiative, was initially I was going to do opioid awareness tour. You know, that was my original idea, but I thought I was really limited in myself because as I'm going out raising awareness to fentanyl and everything else, I started thinking, well, my wife didn't die of fentanyl. She died of alcohol abuse. So why would I just spend my life journey trying to get people to be aware of fentanyl when my wife had a mental health issue and losing a child magnified her grief and she thought alcohol was there. So she never had the opioid addiction issue. So I think for me personally, and I know everybody's going to approach this, everyone's got a different dog in the hunt, let's say, but for me, it's a mental health issue. It's a mental health initiative. And, and I don't want to deflect from the, um, the desire to focus heavily in fentanyl. But my fear is let's say we fix the fentanyl problem. Well, then all those people that bet all their energy on fentanyl, where where are they going to go to? They're going to gravitate to the next opioid that's out there, the next illicit, you know, addition um, to these issues. And so I think, I don't know, I think, uh, I think the mental health initiative thing is really where uh, we can make, make the biggest difference, but certainly we have to, you know, watch the borders. We have to be able to Mm -hmm. test these drugs and make sure that people at least have an option. You know, I heard one person say, well, they're going to do it anyway. Yeah, but who who are we to made, you know, who made us God and jury and king for the day to make that decision? You know, maybe we let this substance abuser decide, yeah. you know? Well, uh, you know, uh, addiction and abuse of um, substances that uh, that give us a, you know, an, an altered state or an altered feeling. I mean, that has, you know, that has literally been around since the, you know, the dawn of man. You know, the, I don't know what the first you know, substance was, but surely even, you know, prior to, I would say Western civilization, you know, people were identifying, you know, different plant substances that, you know, gave them funny, strange feelings. Um, th- that is, mm-hmm. that is never going to change. There is always going to be, um, you know, people are always going to seek out substances that give them pleasure and give them, uh, you know, a feeling other than, you know, what their, you know, their normal, um, you know, normal state is. Yeah. But the, the key, the, certainly the key, the key with fentanyl is yep, fine. That's so true. But I don't, I don't have the risk of picking up, you know, a, a bottle of beer and not knowing whether or not that, that single bottle is going to kill right. me. That is, that, there, there is the major difference with, with, 
with fentanyl currently. We all we all have a right yeah. to to experience certain things with without the absolute, you know, astronomical risk of 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 dying on, you know, uh, you know, on, you know, the one consumption. Wow. And so if we do not address the fentanyl issue, then then shame on us. That is a that is a huge problem. So the 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 in the short term, the minimum that we can do is if we cannot eliminate fentanyl from, you know, our society and from the system entirely, the minimum that we can do is give individuals a tool in order to identify whether or not the substance that they're about to take is potentially lethal or or not that i mean that that would be the minimum because you know we we have yeah, we I... have safety measures and we have um you know things that we you know testing and whatnot that we that we do um in order to ensure that the other other substances and other things that we would consume aren't going to kill us, um, but um, it would be no different I'm, than saying, "Oh well, uh, we don't, you know, we don't need to test the entire, you know, uh, meat supply if if someone comes down with E. coli." Well, you know, it's you know they're, they're going to eat that, you know, they're going to eat that hamburger anyways. No, that's that's not fair. Yeah. So. <laughs> It's yeah. Imagine, imagine a world where imagine a world where forty two percent of the beer on the market had enough fentanyl in it to kill a human. Yeah. Imagine the uproar we'd have. And again, it's the, it's the, it, alcohol has done more damage to humans than arguably anything you know ever on the yeah. planet. And yet, since it's legal, since it's legal, there's no stigma, and we'd have an uproar. We'd have everything tested. We'd have safe alcohol zones where you could come and get your alcohol tested. And alcohol damages the body, you know, even more than marijuana, you know, uh, 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 can. And, you know, and so I got to thinking, it's like, just imagine if, if, uh, that were to happen a world where pizza, you know, 42% of the pizza, you know, that causes all these health problems when sure. you eat all this unhealthy food, but because it's acceptable and it's, it's legal. Yeah. There's not a stigma with it, but when it's, you know, an opioid, it's like, eh, or, or heroin, you know, it's like. You know, wait, wait till fentanyl gets in marijuana, and which is already happening. Yes. You know, um, you know, wait, wait till wait till you see these states that aggressively approved marijuana for for their own reasons. You know, it could have been financial or just you know that's kind of how society's evolved. You know, um, you know, look at the bigger picture. And now we have fentanyl getting into vaping and marijuana. You know, w w how are states going to react? How are how are the Congress people going to react? When this starts happening, because now all of a sudden it's out of the streets, it's out of the back alleys, it's not in a needle, you know, or, or, or you know, something that's um, very seedy. Uh, what's going to happen then? Because that's so, on the way. That's that's certainly the next sure. evolution of this issue. And, you know, and, and um, fentanyl is starting to find its way into... Um, many other illicit drugs. It's not. It's not just heroin. And, and, and it started literally with um, uh, really well cocaine too. Now, right? Yeah. But it, but it it started being cut into um, into heroin, um, and then um, you know it started. Then the the market that is coming on now 
or that has been, uh, you know, so rampant somewhat recently is, um, is fake prescription pills that, I mean, they look like the, the real yeah. uh, controlled and regulated product, but yeah. are just completely, um, in some cases, nearly 100% fentanyl. So um, it's, yeah, I and it's, it's out there. It's, in, oh, it's in the meth market. It's in the cocaine market. It's in the, the uh, you know, the, um, the, the illicit marijuana market. Thank goodness for now, you know, uh, you know, medical, uh, you know, controlled, uh, you know, marijuana in the sense that, you know, the, that it, ha it has to be tested and, um, you know, tightly controlled. But there, there's no doubt that it has, it has seeped into pretty much every, every aspect of, you know, the, the drug seeking. And sometimes it's not even, um, you know, the, there was a point in time where, like you said, that, you know, anyone that dry, died of an overdose that we would label them as a, you know, as a druggie. And um, in right. some cases, there are, it's very, I would say, very well-meaning individuals that for one reason or another, you know, can't just either don't have access to um, or, you know, need additional, um, you know, relief from, from whatever um, that, you know, that are seeking and unfortunately, you know, succumbing to, like you said, whether you want to call it poisoning or not, it's, it's kind of immaterial. But for sure... Um, well, you know, addressing that end of the spectrum is, is it's absolutely critical. You know, when someone dies for whatever reason or cause, the collateral damage is, you know, probably in the hundreds of people that are that are adversely that their lives are never going to be the same. Yeah. You know, we have a daughter, sister, mom, dad, cousin, you know, what somebody dies that one person knows so many people and, and the, 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 um, the generational uh, negative impact on that, you know, kids and grandkids. And so th that's one part of the problem is the collateral damage. So let's go back to, I have a son and I know that he's doing things that he shouldn't be doing that could eventually end in his death. Here's the, here's what I want to ask your thoughts on this and how we can help parents through this, because I think it's real important. Anyone watching this, they, they feel sorry for what you and I went through, but then they go back to their own situation and they're, want, they're wanting to know, okay, so what do I do? I mean, right. what do I do? So if it's, if it's painfully obvious that the only real thing we have as humans is our time and our energy, that's all we really have. And if I spend all that in trying to save somebody else that does not want to be saved at this point, What's my obligation to continue doing that? And I struggled with that with Seth. And we kicked mm -hmm. him out of the house. He got out of prison. I wouldn't let him move in. He died within six months. Six. He died within 60 days after he got out of prison because of my decision, you know, not to let him move in because my two boys and my wife at the time. So do we have an obligation? I mean, do we have to bring down everybody around the person that's struggling? Or the, does there become a point in time where you cut the tether and you just let that person figure it out. And that's a hard thing to say because I am coming from 
a lens where I've done that twice in my life and both people ended up dying. So, I, you know, I think there, there are, there's certainly, uh, you know, many shades of color of the, you know, the, the people, um, the people that fall into um, the situation of, of addiction. And again, whether it's, you know, it's Adderall or opioids or alcohol or gambling or whatever. Um, I agree with you when, you, you know, previously you said that it, 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 it ultimately, it, it comes back to, um, to mental health. There, there is no, no doubt that it is mm -hmm. absolutely intertwined in you. It's completely, um, I don't know that you could ever untangle that knowing what I know now, I wish that I would have paid more attention and focused more attention on the mental mm. health needs of my sister than the, um, Me as well. either the physical Me as well. or the addiction, you know, issues. Um, yeah. And no, again, knowing what I know now, knowing what the opioids were doing to her brain, that even it, further, because, you know, she was abusing alcohol. She was abusing other drugs. She, you know, she was, um, you know, she had, uh, you know, she had other psychological issues as a result, not only of the of the opioid addiction, but also really of the uh, really the disease state that she was operating in, not only, you know, from her chronic disease, but really just the, the, the disease, the general state that she was trying to operate in. Um, I think I, I, I'd, I'm an earth, eternal optimist. I'd like to think that the vast yeah, majority of people don't want to operate every day in pain. I'm not talking about physical pain, but, you know, anguish, oh, mental pain that they, they generally want to be happy and functioning. And if we can focus more on those mental health needs, then, then some of the other issues associated with addiction will, I don't want to say work themselves out, but they, it, you know, it will start to be, the, the puzzle pieces will start to fit. And um, I think that that's something that we, hasn't always been, been clear when it comes to addiction. And that also hasn't always been part of the conversation of how, you know, how to fix it. One, you know, one of the, one of the silver linings of the, um, the COVID pandemic that I see is there has been so much attention, so much importance put on mental health needs of just people in general. Right. Um, and right. the fact that, you know, that I can pick up my phone and be connected essentially with a, with a therapist through, a, you know, an app or through telemedicine or, or whatever in, in minutes is something positive that technology and COVID has done for, you know, for our society. 
and the just Absolutely. societal attention on mental health needs that has come about as a result of the pandemic is is has been really um uh, you know astronomical and it's 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 really it's it's encouraging and it's impressive but we can't you know we can't let our laurels yeah. down we have to you know we we have to go even further and i do believe that if if we would have i'll say we my family if we would have spent a bit more attention on my sister's mental health needs and th then per perhaps she would still be with us today um i think that you know that it it's would be hard, difficult yeah. to say that she would be you know completely fine and happy and and you know living a wonderful glorious life but i do think that she would still be with us i don't know i don't know that you know I do know that if she had never been prescribed opioids for chronic pain, if she had never yeah. been placed on long-term high-dose opioids, I do believe that she would still be with us today. But she had a whole lot of other problems as well. And, it, and if we don't address all of those aspects, all of those spokes of the wheel, then you're right. Then, then yeah, we won't. That we, then, you know, we will not solve the pro problem for everyone and perhaps we cannot solve the problem for everyone That's i know the, uh... that there are some people out there that are you know just so damaged that that you know all of the help in the world may not be able to save them but i certainly think that we can do a better job of trying yeah Sarah and Seth both had plenty of co-occurring uh, issues where, you know, each, um, you know, could have been depression, anxiety. Uh, obviously, it was, you know, magnified by, you know, pills, in your case, opioid, and for Seth, it was um, Adderall. But, you know, going back to the mental health thing, I think that's the sweet spot where if we really want to get this thing to change and get these numbers to start going in the other direction, I mean— you look at the suicide rates, things like that. It's just, you know, it's, it's incredible that we had, I think I saw a stat that said 800,000 humans died last year to suicide in, in, on the, in, in the world. You know, that, 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 that that's just suicide, you know, then, then you talk about the addiction issues and alcohol and all the depression and, and it's like, you know, I agree with you. COVID did some great things in connecting people, mm -hmm. but it also, as connected as we are, I think we're very disconnected as well yeah. simultaneously. I think it's, it's easy for us to pick up the phone and reach somebody, but there's more unhappy humans than there's ever been probably in the history of humanity. And we have more abundance and we have more everything we've ever had. So, you know, it's going to take a long time, but I think it, I think to change the narrative, to change the curve to move the needle, it's going to start with the kids. Sure. I think for me to get, a 40 year old housewife to stop drinking three bottles of Cabernet a night. That's been doing it for 15 years that has issues. that went back to childhood. I'm not really sure that's a place where I want to spend my time. I just don't know if I'm going to be productive to society. You know, I'm certainly not a clinician. I don't have the medical background to help somebody with that, but I think I can get the kids. I think I can talk to those 12, 
13, 14 year old kids and talk about choices preceding consequences and talk about roads going down. You know, every decision you make is a fork in the road. And, I and think you know, the easiest way it, it sounds, it sounds very antiquated and it sounds so simple, but the easiest way to quit something is to never start. And sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, Occam's razor says simply the, the easiest solution is often the correct one or the most obvious solution. And if we just go back to kids and just present these things as really not manifesting into these, you know, very difficult choices, they're, they're, it, it, there's a fork in the road. You decide to vape, you know, then what's next, you right. know, and, and maybe present using my story and Sarah's story. This is how it ended for Seth and Sarah, but this isn't who they were. This isn't, right. they were just like you when they were 12. Yeah. They were no different, but something yeah. happened. And so I think that's, that's kind of where cat, where I like to spend the rest of my life is, is, you know, spending more time and in trying to influence the, the influential. A lot of times a 40 year old housewife has no desire to listen to sure. anything I say or an 18 year old that's been addicted to drugs for five years, you know? And I think that, um, you know, it's important, you know, we get, I get, um, you know, both inquiries and questions and approached. And I, I meet a lot of people through, you know, my work at prop and, you know, so many, so many different conversations. And often, you know, I, I hear it all the time, you know, like you, you mentioned it earlier. Well, it's, you know, the opioid epidemic isn't about prescription opioids anymore. Now it's about fentanyl. Okay, fine. But, you know, mm-hmm. I can't be everything to everybody. I am not, you know, like what you're saying, I, I'm, yeah. I'm not going to solve all of the issues. But if I'm going to, I'm going to focus my efforts on one particular area, as I think that, you know, we are most mm-hmm. in, in general as humans, we are most effective when we when we focus our efforts on, you know, 100%. on certain, you know, certain areas. Um, there is... N- I don't want to say that there's nothing that I could do, but that's not, you know, that that's not my um, my wheelhouse in terms of going out and addressing, you know, how does, you know, uh, stopping the flow of illicit fentanyl from the, you know, the Mexican borders or from, you know, getting mailed in from from China. That's that, you know, that that's not my wheelhouse, but I am going to focus my efforts in the area where, like you say, where I think that I am going to be the most effective and using my sister's Mm -hmm. story and um, talking about what we know about the real science, not only of, of opioids and, but of the use of opioids in acute and chronic pain relief that 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 is a wheelhouse that I am comfortable, you know, operating in, and that is where I choose to focus. And if I can prevent, you know, one one person from unnecessarily being exposed to opioids, whether it be from you know their dentist right. or the emergency room or their orthopedic surgeon or you know their rheumatologist or whatever, whoever. However, they get exposed to prescription opioids. If I can prevent one person from unnecessarily being exposed to those opioids, I'm not talking about people that have, you know, have, 
are, you know, have been in horrific car accidents that are in, you know, in traction and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, th I'm not talking about yeah, that. Yeah, because we need, we need some of these painkillers for That's sure. That's true. There, there yep. is a place and a time for, you know, yeah. for opiates. That is, that is, and we have never, um, mm -hmm. you know, d denied that. There is a place and time for right. the, you know, potent pain relief, you know, prescription pain relief, such as, as opioids. But if I can prevent one person from being well, unnecessary. It's the recreational use that gets in trouble. Oh, sure. Yeah. But especially the law, it's, it's no different than alcohol. The longer and that the higher qu amounts of the quantities that you, that your body is exposed to yeah. anything that does damage, the, the, the greater the risks there are that you will eventually experience some, you know, you know, truly debilitating damage, uh, potentially fatal. The, the problem with, with opioids is that it doesn't take long and it doesn't take uh, as much as you think for the brain to literally become dependent on that medication, on that prescription. And once it does, do you, do you think... it is extremely difficult to reverse that and to change it and to become undependent, independent, undependent on those opioids. <laughs> you know, one thing we haven't talked about is the, the, the laws, uh, the people that are being incarcerated for drug use. But do you think decriminalization is something that could have society look at this from a different perspective. Cause you know, it used to be, mm -hmm. you just locked people up, you know, oh, and yeah. then you got addicts and abusers that are in jail getting, getting no help at all. And then when they do get out, they are just thrown to the wolves and they yeah. either go back to what they were doing. I mean, the, the reuse rate is like 90%. It's, yeah. uh, it's ridiculous. Um, I think, I feel like we're just letting down a lot of people that need help. A, by incarcerating him, and then B, when they do get out, we don't do anything for him. Personally, and, and this, is, this is my personal opinion that I'm talking about here, not necessarily the, um, the stance or the position of prop. I personally believe that right. um, de decriminalization to, uh, for, the, for the vast majority of, of drug-related um, and you know, drug charges is, is absolutely a... A positive step. Um, my sister, my sister was incarcerated several times. She was never incarcerated for, mm -hmm. um, you know, possessing possessing drugs or um, you know being yep, me too. being high or um, you know. Right. She was she was never incarcerated for the drugs specifically. She was incarcerated for the bad choices right. that she made, either seeking drugs yeah, exactly. or being on drugs. So yep. I don't have a same as Seth. I don't have an issue with you know her her criminal record per se, but I will say that the the criminal justice system didn't do didn't do her any favors and didn't do her any help aside from. Aside from the fact that for the period of time that she was incarcerated, 
she essentially got got clean then the, the problem then became is the the, right. the second that she was you know was released she like you said she was she was thrown to the wolves she had she had little to no resources to help her stay clean um and and, and that is so that is very much a oh go ahead sorry no, I was going to say personally, that is very much a situation that I would like to see. And we are starting to see that more and more that there are a lot more. Um, there's a, you know, there's a, you know, uh, prisons and criminal justice systems where they are actively treating um, inmates, giving them. It, it used to be that, that, you know, inmates had no no access to any, um, you know, opioid use disorder drugs, you know, buprenorphine or Suboxone or anything. It used to be that inmates had no access. That's changing. Right. And we are learning and these studies are showing that if we, you know, the ones that want them, if we give them these resources while they're in jail, and you know, after they're released, then their their chances of of um, not returning and staying clean are significantly higher. So that is slowly changing. So a you know don't don't put them in jail yeah. in the in the first place just for for being high or having you know uh, certainly you know a couple of joints or you know some marijuana on you. That no. Um, yeah. But. Right. But yes, are we are slowly but surely changing that. I, I do like in the movie Dope Sick where they portrayed the use of methadone. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Michael Keaton's character uh, was taking methadone. And then he talked about how it was hard for him to get back to get his license because he was taking an opioid to help get off an opioid. Yeah. And I think a lot of people need to be aware that, you know, that is a bridge. It's not it's not an answer. It's a bridge to get someone to a clean uh, the clean life. And again, whatever it takes, I mean, whatever it takes to get that person struggling to get to the one day where they decide this is the last day I ever do this again. Right. And everybody that's ever become clean or sober has that one day. My day was December 24th, 2017. Today I stopped drinking. And if I would have died the day before, um, from something then I would never have reached that day of sobriety. So I think as a society, we owe it to these people that are really struggling with mental health issues that are addicted or are abusing substances. Buy them time. You know, yeah. I think we owe them that. We owe them to give them the ability to make their own choices. And whether that's test strips or clean syringes or it's less uh, time in jail um, and more time in therapy or with, with a um, you know a therapist or whatever, I'm, I'm all for it. Um, and again, I think what you and I in an hour conversation are having is important because we have more questions than answers. I know I certainly do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I run around claiming I know the answers to everything, then I think I'll do more harm than good. But do you have any last, I know we're reaching an hour, which is a great conversation, Kat. I really appreciate your insight. Um, certainly like to have you back on the show down the road to kind of look at where things have evolved. But any last comments that you want to make on this topic and then i think i'd like to know how people can reach you if um if they're interested in reaching out with you personally on on social media or you know just have a conversation with you about some of these topics about specifically about prop about what you're doing with prop sure so um so quickly you know how you can reach me um 
uh, prop. Um, our website is supportprop.org. Um, we are on, um, on LinkedIn and, um, Twitter again, it's a uh, support prop and, um, on LinkedIn, it's uh, healthcare professionals for responsible opioid prescribing. I am personally on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm not, well, mm -hmm. uh, prop is on Twitter, but I, I, I personally try to stay away from Twitter because it's, there's a lot of, uh, uh there's a lot of junk, a lot of, um. Uh, and, you know, negative, negative Toxic. people on, on Twitter personally. Um, yeah. you know, I, I, again, I just, I guess in closing, I just want to say that, you know, uh, prop and my goal is not to, uh, not necessarily to solve the entire opioid epidemic, but definitely, you know, to address, um, you know, address where and make a difference where where we can, where I can, and where it makes sense. You know, scientifically, um, we know better. We know better now than we did. You know, twenty years ago, uh, fifteen or twenty-five years ago, thirty years ago, and we know now that you know there are certain populations that that really shouldn't be uh, being prescribed opioids. And that there are there are ways to mitigate uh, not only um, you know use of opioids in general, but also to mitigate and and help people get off of 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 opioids. And it's a it's a complicated story, but it's not mm -hmm. it's it's you know some people might look at it as at, as Mount Everest, but you know what people. People climb, people reach the top of Mount Everest. So, you know, it can be done and slowly but surely, mm -hmm. you know, you know, the, the first step is literally the first step. Take the first step. And for me, um, anything that I can do personally and um, as an organization, as prop in order to educate the general public and um, and physicians and healthcare professionals about the, the true risks and benefits of, of opioids um, is it, that's it's a wor it's a job worth doing. Well, certainly Sarah and Seth and all the others that are have been lost to all these uh, issues are grateful and, and proud of what we're doing. And so that's that keeps me going, at least. I'm sure it keeps you going as well. Um, well, thank you very much. I Really appreciate the time you've taken, and I will, when we post this, I'll have all your contact information included as well. Uh, and I end every show with telling every guest, and I don't know if I should say this anymore because I think you're doing this anyway, but keep doing what you're doing. I admire your advocacy and always live undeterred. Thank you very much for being on the show. You're very welcome, and thank you.